Now it was time for Atlanta's first black police officers. Their names were Willie T. Elkins, Willard Strickland, Robert McKibbins, Claude Dixon, Johnny P. Jones, John Sanders Jr., Henry Hooks, and Ernest Lyons. With great anticipation, more than 400 blacks stood outside the Butler Street YMCA on April 3, 1948, for the first official patrol by black police in Atlanta. There was a collective sense of accomplishment, pride, even emancipation. Mayor Hartsfield and Police Chief Jenkins stood in the basement of the YMCA. Hartsfield played the role of inspirational leader. He gave a pep talk to the eight black police officers who nervously stared at their shoe tops only moments before they were to emerge in full public view. You are more than just policemen. You are going out as the first representatives of your race in Atlanta, Hartsfield told them. Your success is my success and the success of the city council, the chief, your race, and the city at large. Hartsfield cited Jackie Robinson, who had broken the color barrier in baseball the year before and had risen to stardom despite the insults and racial epithets. Do the kind of job that Jackie did in Brooklyn, Hartsfield said, thrusting his fist into the air. Welcome to the Atlanta Legacy Makers Podcast. I'm Floyd Hall, here at 145 Auburn Avenue. This is episode four of the podcast that corresponds to part four of the Gary M. Pomerantz book, Where Peastry Meets Sweet Auburn, A Saga of Race and Family. You heard Gary's voice in the open. Part four of Where Peastry Meets Sweet Auburn is entitled Segregated City. And in this episode, we'll get some perspective from Edith Kelman of the Early Edgewood Candler Park Biracial History Project and Alexis Scott, former publisher of the Atlanta Daily World. Here at 145 Auburn Avenue, there are some pretty obvious reminders of the past in terms of the history of this building. There are plaques on both sides of the main door and just above the main door, there is a graphic that says Atlanta Daily World. This is the former home of that publication. But before we hear from Alexis Scott about the Atlanta Daily World, we get some interpretation on this part of where Peastree meets Sweet Auburn from Edith Kelman, the project manager for the Early Edgewood Candler Park Biracial History Project. When you approached me, Floyd, you presented this platform as an invitation to bring more community folks into the, to the local history table, to talk out loud about vital, the vital and necessary role, role of history to our understanding, in particular of the complexity of race relations here in Atlanta, um, to grasp 
how relevant the living history can be to our growth and understanding. Um, so thank you for this opportunity. Um, the Early Edgewood Candler Park Biracial History Project um, has been in our neighborhood here for 14 years. Um, we're a citizen-led community-based education and restorative justice organization, grassroots organization in the Early Edgewood Candler Park neighborhood which was home to hundreds of African-American residents from the 1870s into the 1980s. And today in Candler Park, over these 14 years, we've been working together, collaborating with the stakeholders to reclaim the African-American history of the neighborhood. Our work is centered in respect, fellowship, and education. The History Project's community partners stand together with our research, personal narratives, cultural programs, tours, and interpretive legacy markers to bring this inclusive history into public awareness. Well, with that as, as context, uh, Edith, I'm so curious to, to know what you thought of, of this part of where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn, because I think you have such a different perspective of how Atlanta has evolved um, as a city. And so I would love for you to maybe shed some some light on your earliest impressions of, of this book. Um, I'm really engaged with, his, with Pomerantz's writing style. Um, and having done quite a bit of research over these 14 years and and I love doing research, uh, but to find um, this kind of density in detail of well-researched information presented in such um, an engaging um, writing style with, you know, it's obvious that um, Pomerantz was very, felt very connected to his research and his subject matter. And certainly with the the tremendous number of personal interviews that he was um, able to uh, produce with with the stakeholders in this um, you can feel the intimacy and and the subtlety and the humanity um, and the complexity of the black and white power structures the density and southern gothic nature of the politics the depth and the creativity of individual efforts to live humane lives while navigating these powerful systemic pervasive systems that often um, are the bedrock of racism here um, and and the capacity that he he shows the the evolution uh, the capacity for deep change um, that some of these players some of these people um, demonstrated as they became more open through interpersonal connection and collaborative work uh, together for for aims political and cultural. And, and human aims, 
um, I, I feel very absorbed by his writing. And it certainly contextualizes a lot of the, the local research I've been doing. And it has helped me to grasp better, um, again, I say that the Southern Gothic nature of, of these politics and, and power structures that are the bedrock of um, modernizing Atlantis. So when speaking about this part of the book, I would love for you to maybe highlight a couple of passages or segments from the book that really jumped out to you, that made you think more deeply about it. There is a particular section in the book where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn that jumps out for me. This is page 246, starts at the bottom of the page. Among large southern cities, Atlanta was among the last to end in forced segregation in its main library. Already Miami, Charlotte, Louisville, Chattanooga, Knoxville, and New Orleans had desegregated library systems. Since the Supreme Court decision in 1954, several Black groups had sought permission to use downtown libraries in Atlanta on the same basis as whites but to no avail. The Atlanta public library system had several small branches reserved for blacks. In the main branch, blacks were still permitted to read books, but only in the basement. In the spring of 1959, a few blacks had attempted to obtain library cards at the main branch. None had succeeded. When Dr. Irene Dobbs Jackson, Maynard Jackson's mother, walked into the main library in downtown Atlanta that May of 19, what did I say, 59, yes. She was a well-dressed 51-year-old Spelman College professor of French. I want to become a member here, she told the white man at the front desk. Rini was frightened by her own words. She did not view herself as a heroine. She simply wanted a library card. In France, where she had lived, she had been free to visit any public library and to check out any book she wanted. Waiting patiently for a reply, she watched as the man at the front desk walked to the back of the room and engaged in a heated debate with his superiors. Finally, the man returned and handed her a form. He told Rini to sign it, and she did. We'll call you later, he said. Rini did not believe him. Later, her father, the Grand, told her to hire a lawyer and let the courts handle it. Yet already the Atlanta Library Board, along with Hartsfield and Chief Herbert Jenkins, was holding secret discussions about desegregating the city's main library. Finally, on May 18th, May 19th, 1959, the library board agreed to give black Atlantans the same privileges as whites at the main branch, hoping to minimize the possibility of an antagonistic response. The board opted not to announce the change. Not until four days later did the local newspapers discover it. Only when pressed did library director John C. Settlemayer admit that a new policy was in place. But Settlemayer 
said the change likely would have little effect since records indicated that few blacks used their own branches over the years. Governor Ernest Vandiver denounced the new policy contending it, quote, does not represent the thinking or the wishes of the vast rank and file of colored citizens who would prefer to use their own library facility, unquote. But Vandiver predicted that segregation would continue on a voluntary basis at Atlanta's main library despite the change. Hartsfield chose his words more carefully, quote, a public library is a symbol of literacy, education, and cultural progress. It does not attract troublemakers, unquote, he said. He stressed Atlanta's good reputation in race relations, and he expected those relations to continue. For Rini, the trouble started when the Constitution wrote that, quote, the first card issued to a Negro by the downtown library went to Mrs. Maynard H. Jackson, 220 Sunset Avenue, Northwest. Her phone started ringing at home that morning. Don't you know, and words can't read, one ca caller said. That night, a few unfamiliar cars drove along Sunset Avenue, moving slowly and surreptitiously, searching for 220. Once they spotted the apartment house, they stopped out front. From the street, a few shouted obscenities and honked horns. Dobbs family members congregated that night to offer support and protection to Rini. Millie Dobbs Jordan wouldn't stand for any harassment of her older sister. When the phone next rang, she waved away Rini. She picked up the receiver and heard the racial epithets. Millie erupted. Y'all must be N-word lovers. You keep on calling here to talk to us, unquote. As the controversy subsided during the following days, Rini, along with her thoughts, wondered about Atlanta. Civil rights for blacks were inevitable, she knew. Whites in Atlanta had to see the judgment day coming, didn't they? She decided that her father was right about white Southerners going up their old, giving up their old prejudices. The Grand had said that such changes would come slowly, grudgingly, like the sun fading at dusk, until finally one day the old prejudices would be gone. Rini couldn't wait for that day, she thought. It is just like somebody giving up a religion. What did that passage make you think about? And how did it make you feel? You know, we keep learning in the book um, just how deeply, authentically, genuinely cultured the Dobbs family, generations of the Dobbs family were, and, and how libraries and learning and art and music were in their DNA. And I mean, these, the highest human qualities, you know, were so exemplified in this family, the generations. And for, for them, as well as, you know, the entire population of African-Americans um, 
in the city of Atlanta library system to be so belittled and demeaned. Um, you know, this kind of just a broad brush segregation, dehumanizing behavior as an artist myself, you know, just um, makes makes my innards curdle. And I, through his description and writing, I, I felt like I was watching as, as Rini, you know, was in her full humanity and, and deep intelligence was having to navigate these um, dehumanizing, insulting, policies I mean these were policies you know these were so um yeah that that affected me deeply and although it's it's of a different degree it's a, yet another manifestation of this false sense of hierarchy that segregation um operates and operates still in its way, you know, today. And it is, it's a form of terrorism. Some forms are more subtle than others. Some are deadly as, as we are recently become aware. Um, but there is resonance there. There's resonance in the book. And, and there's also a resonance in, with some of the research um, that the Biracial History Project discovered. Um, and if, I don't know if, if I may, um, in, in our Candler Park Biracial History Project research, we discovered a short article in the December, uh, December 1929 Atlanta Constitution that brought to light a vivid incident here um, in early Candler Park of personal terrorism in the neighborhood. And it's short. I wondered if I might read that, Floyd. Sure, go ahead. Yes. Okay. Um, this was December 5th, 1929, titled Two Small Coffins Put on Doorsteps Terrorize Negroes. The text. Two small coffins perfect reproductions in miniature of authentic articles. Today lie upon the desk of Chief of Detectives A. Lamar Poole, while men under his command are seeking those who are responsible for placing them upon the doorstep of two Negro homes early Wednesday morning in the subsequent terror of the occupants of the houses. Horace Dobbs, of 188 North Mason Avenue and Will Banks of 209 North Mason Avenue, which are both now in the Candler Park neighborhood, are the two Negroes who received the sinister warnings placed upon their doorsteps early Wednesday morning or late Tuesday night. The coffins are lined with silk and satin shrouds and accompanying each were cards bearing the, the inscription, quote, move or these await you, KKK, unquote. 
The coffins are about two feet long and half a foot wide. They are reproduced in every detail of a larger one, even to the nickel-plated handles. The gruesome warnings were propped against the Negro's front doors and were found when they started to work Wednesday morning. That resonates very close to home here. I live just a couple of blocks away from those locations. And um, the resonance goes through generations from the past into the present. Now, Edith, just for our listeners' sake, um, so they can fully understand what you just read, in the early Edgewood, Candler Park neighborhood, uh, this is in 1929, these coffins were placed on someone's doorstep in an effort to get them to move out of the neighborhood. Yes. This neighborhood evolved in the 1870s, post-Civil War, as a biracial neighborhood. There were black and white families, and actually there were, um, uh, I think there were 1,700 residents, um, and um, there were 200 more African-American than white residents. Um, in the early 1900s. So um, by the 1920s, um, with the resurrection, one might say, of the Ku Klux Klan in 1915 um, uh, on, at Stone Mountain and um, with um, uh, the, the D.W. Griffith film, um, reigniting the Klan um, and with new concepts of the quote livable city that were looking to aggressively segregate what had been biracial neighborhoods uh, to create on the north in our neighbor in our area here north of the tracks an all-white neighborhood. At this point, it was conceptual, but it, it's on paper. We even have um, a 1922 map that's come out of our research that shows this concept of zoning, this new concept of zoning, where they're imagining Candler Park with no people of color um, and Edgewood on the south side of the tracks with some people of color. So this this was a, a new concept, this this aggressive concept of um, segregation that really was taking root here in the 1920s, and it, it was gradual. I mean, we also have um, a map from the Public Works Administration from 1940 that shows um, the actual distribution race-wise. Um, of the population in the Edgewood Candler Park neighborhood. And it still shows in the 40s significant African American residents on the north side of the tracks and uh, an increased density on the south side of the tracks. But there was this, you know, official um, city council plan that had been devised in 1922 that apparently was you know, the, the vision for the future. And so there were efforts on the part of 
members of the KKK and other community people to um, accelerate that that vision and really um, move out African Americans who were living north of the tracks. And this the specificity of you know teasing out the the biracial neighborhood in in early Edgewood Candler Park. This was happening all over the city in different neighborhoods. This this shift, this 1922 zoning plan, this beautiful cities concept was being played out in neighborhoods um, all around the city and certainly all around the South. Um, and even as we know, you know, around the country, um, Northern and Western um, cities were, were not exempt from um, segregation practices. Um, so um, Candler Park and the the kind of detail and, and intimacy of, of personal connection um, that the Biracial History Project has um, encouraged, you know, has really made this specific learning um, very visceral. And it is, you know, it's, it's part of this, the way I think that individuals can evolve with an open mind um, and with these direct experiences with individuals and with you know the, the tangible nature of research, um, how this is how we evolve. And um, hopefully the evolution is also, and as Pomeranz points out in some of his, his key um, personalities in the book, we can see evolution. Um, in, in Ivan Allen and in, within the Dobbs family and how necessary it is. We're born into a context and <clears throat> it's up to our intelligence and creativity uh, to open our minds and discover more and, and grow. Visit biracialhistoryproject.org to learn more about the Early Edgewood Candler Park Biracial History Project. Switching gears, the Atlanta Daily World was founded in 1928 by William Alexander Scott II and was one of the most prominent African-American newspapers in Atlanta throughout the 1900s and early 2000s. Multiple generations of the Scott family published the newspaper throughout that tenure and it gets mentioned quite a bit in where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn. I'm excited to get some perspective from Alexis Scott on the founding of this publication, as well as her experiences in Atlanta as a segregated city. My name is Marion Alexis Scott. I use my middle name, Alexis, because I was named for my mother and my father. My mother's first name is Marion and she's still alive. So I've grown up being called Alexis. But and when I write my name, I write M. Alexis Scott. I would like to be remembered as the publisher of the Atlanta Daily World from 1997 until 2014, as the third generation um, publisher by the newspaper that was founded by my grandfather, William Alexander Scott II. What's the origin story of the Atlanta Daily World? Can you take us back to the beginnings of, of the publication? 
Okay, let's go back to the beginning of the publication. Would be um, first paper was printed on August fifth, nineteen twenty-eight. Although I have never seen a copy of that particular paper, it does not exist in the flesh anymore, as far as I know. But that was the first publication. It was my grandfather's idea to start the paper as a result of a conversation that he had with a banker at Citizens Trust Bank, which was the black bank in Atlanta that was started in 1921. And he was going to, the original intent my grandfather had was to publish a group of black business directories throughout the Southeast. He had published a Jacksonville uh, business directory in 1927. He published one for Atlanta in 1928, early in the year. And his plan was to go around the region and publish these business directories so black people could know who to do business with, et cetera, et cetera, and who was doing business. So, um, but he had a conversation with one of the bankers, and I can't remember whether it was Mr. Yates or Mr. Milton, to um, start a paper in Atlanta. And he listened and he decided to go ahead with it. He got a $500 loan from the bank, and he also uh, inherited a printing press from a insurance company that was going out of business. And he got that, uh, I guess it was in receivership, and with the $500, he was able to get the printing press and start the paper. It started as a weekly, and within a year or so, he was publishing two or three, two times a week. He also, I can't remember the dates that he started, but he also owned the Birmingham world, the Memphis world, and the Chattanooga world. And by 1931, he was determining that he should make it a daily newspaper. At the time in Atlanta, there was only one other black publication. It was called the Atlanta Independent. And it was run by um, a fraternity. A fraternal order, the Odd Fellows, which uh, maybe for me with the Odd Fellows building down on Auburn Avenue, um, and it published. Not it didn't publish irregularly, but it published irregularly, um, and it was focused on the work of the fraternity, the Odd Fellows, as opposed to just a general interest publication. So my grandfather determined that he would make it, the Atlanta World a general interest, interest publication that everybody would be interested in reading. And once he got that done, as a weekly, he decided if he did it more than once a week, he could make more money. So he decided to do that. And by the time he went to, um, he determined that in order for it to become a daily, it needed to have a real newspaper editor. Prior to this time, he had had some people working who had, you know, had some college or even just some high school, but he wanted to get someone who was trained trained in newspaper work and experience. So he drove to Chicago with one of his brothers. We think it was either ML or CA, not sure which. My grandfather was one of six brothers. He had three sisters also, so there were nine altogether. But he drove up to Chicago to find an editor because in Chicago was the home of the Associated Negro Press, 
also the home of the Chicago Defender, which had been operating since 1905, was the oldest black newspaper primarily. And um, he thought he could find somebody there who had some experience that he could convince to come to Atlanta to help him make the paper a daily. He got up there and he was referred to Frank Marshall Davis. And he went to meet with him at the time. Frank had been part of a group that tried to do a daily newspaper in Chicago, but they couldn't make it past a month because they just didn't have the resources to do it financially. He also, Frank had also worked as an editor of the Associated Negro Press. And the Associated Negro Press was part of the machinery that furnished news to black newspapers across the country. They all, you know, bought into a membership to get the information. And it was sent around to each publication. Um, but at the time that my grandfather went up there, um, Frank was working at in Gary, Indiana, one of the newspapers there as an editor. And my grandfather went and talked to him. I know all these things because Frank Marshall Davis wrote a memoir that was published posthumously in 1987. And he was, um, had a whole chapter dedicated to his time in Atlanta and, you know, how he met my grandfather, et cetera. So my father offered him a job to come to Atlanta to help him make his paper become a daily. And he said he'd pay him, I think he said, $25 a week. And if, it, if things went well, he'd raise it to 35 at the time, Frank said he was making 15, so it got his attention. He'd never been south before. I think he was born in Kansas, and he grew up, you know, in the Midwest and went to Kansas State University and studied journalism, and then went into journalism for various publications, including also working for the Associated Negro Press. So um, he he listened to my grandfather. He convinced him to come to Atlanta, and he came down. In, I think it was January or February of 1931. And at the time, they were doing twice and three times a week, I think. And um, they were working towards this goal of publishing every day. And they made that goal in March of 1932. The paper began publishing once, once every day, seven days a week. Did you get a sense of Atlanta as a city that was segregated? I was definitely segregated, but I was part of this kind of black cocoon that was surrounded by all these amazing, wonderful people who were super intelligent, who had terminal degrees like PhD and this, that, and the other thing that they had all gotten because of segregation in Georgia. They I had PhDs from Columbia, Berkeley, Chicago, all these amazing institutions because they could not go to the University of Georgia to get a graduate degree. So, but the state paid them to go away, and they did, and some of them came back, and some of them were my teachers, and most of them were the wives of the husbands who taught at Atlanta University School, and, you know, Morehouse, Belmont, Clark, Atlanta University, and so they were all these brilliant people that I was surrounded by and taught by. The other thing was... Um, I just, uh, I've, I had a sense of the segregation that was there because of the media piece. My dad got tickets to Theater Under the Stars, which was at the time at Chastain Park, 
you know, where they had the amphitheater out there. And we got tickets to go see some King and the King and I. And it was so great. We had these really great seats down, you know, in the front of the thing. And I, I just really liked it. And the next time we were going to go was to South Pacific. And we had to sit in the back. And I just pitched a bitch. I said, why are we sitting back here? Daddy? We're going to sit down in the last seat. And they had decided that, I don't know if it was a integrated audience that night or not. The first time we went, I don't remember anything. I just knew that we went from sitting down near the front to up way on the back on the grass. Not even a seat. Like, what the hell is this? And I was like six or seven years old. I pitched a bitch, a good one, too. And I said, I don't want to, I just want to go home. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. Of course, we didn't go home. And I sat and I enjoyed it. It was a wonderful show. But uh, I was really angry about it. Uh, so I knew exactly, you know, what was going on. But for the most part, I did not confront it because my everyday life was with this wonderful black people. I had a black doctor. Black lawyers, black accounts, black everything. And these were my parents' friends and colleagues. And uh, so we had this kind of, I don't know, it was a strange, strange existence. But it was something that gave me mixed messages and signals all the time that I wasn't good enough, that I was really great. <laughs> and life was good. You should be grateful. Thinking back on Auburn Avenue, um, I guess perhaps this heyday of Auburn Avenue um, as captured in this book, but even, I guess, in, in your own mind, um, what what kind of comes to mind when you when you think about what Auburn Avenue has meant to Atlanta and the people of Atlanta? I think the legacy is that it was a place where Black business, Black professionalism, and Black thinking all came together to push the city forward, to make it move in the direction of progress towards integration, business, and education. Because it was the epicenter for black business and black professionals too. In that era, just before the civil rights movement, Thank you to Alexis Scott. Thank you to Edith Kelman. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Atlanta Legacy Makers podcast. And I hope you're enjoying the book, Where Peachtree Meets Sweet Auburn. Part four is in the books, pun intended. And next up is part five entitled Civil Rights. So let's keep reading and we'll talk about it in the next episode. Until then. I'm Floyd Hall, and forever, I love Atlanta. Atlanta Legacy Makers is an initiative led by Central Atlanta Progress and the City of Atlanta. Special thanks to author Gary M. Pomerantz, 
lecturer at Stanford University in the graduate program in journalism. We heard Gary at the very beginning of this episode talking about some of the backstory of writing where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn. And we're thankful and thrilled to have Gary's perspective throughout this project. Special thanks to our amazing partners, Atlanta Downtown Improvement District, Atlanta Public Schools, Constellations, Gene Kansas Commercial Real Estate, the Ivan Allen College of Liberal Arts at Georgia Tech, One Atlanta, and Supporter Report. Atlanta Legacy Makers is hosted and produced by Floyd Hall. That's me. Music by Smith and Cash. Last but not least, thank you, Atlanta. <laughs>